No organization is entirely invincible, but there's a lot we can do to support the success on the journey of innovation. On this episode, moving past some of the common myths to reinvent our organizations for a changing future. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 470. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Innovation is a word that so many of us want to have as a part of a regular practice in our organizations. And up until recently, it was a nice to have in many organizations. If we have time, if we're able to get to it, has been not necessarily the intention, but in practice what has happened. Today, with all the changes happening in the world, innovation has become not only an important focus for many organizations, but it has become a necessity. That is why I am so glad to be bringing to you today's guest who is an expert at helping organizations not only innovate effectively, but to become invincible. I'm so glad to welcome to the show Alex Osterwalder. Alex is obsessed with making strategy, innovation, and entrepreneurship simple, practical, and applicable. He invented the business model canvas and co-founded strategizer.com and lead authored the business model generation book, which sold a million copies in 30 languages. You've heard that book mentioned a number of times here on the show before. He's one of the top-ranked management thinkers in the world, as recognized by Thinkers 50. And he is the author of the new book, The Invincible Company, How to Constantly Reinvent Your Organization with Inspiration from the World's Best Business Models. Alex, I am so glad to welcome you to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I have been following your work for the better part of a decade. Business model generation has been uh, one of the tools I've recommended often, so I was so excited to see this new book. But before we get into it, I can't help but have noticed something that it says on your Twitter profile. The statement, I believe, is, I won't rest until executives operate like surgeons. <laughs> I was wondering if you could tell me what you mean by that. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think innovation is really becoming a profession, right? You don't just learn it by going to one or two workshops. <laughs> Imagine a surgeon, you know, going to a workshop, learning a new procedure, and then, and, and then walking into the operating theater. Hey, I'm going to try this out, right? So <laughs> I believe innovation has come a long way. And now we have tools and processes that are really important. And, you know, if you push the analogy, you know, first you need to learn the anatomy and physiology of businesses, business models, value propositions, organizational culture, you need to le learn that part, the theory, but you can't become world-class by reading books, right? So no surgeon, you know, just read books, that'd be terrible. So you have to practice as well. And I do believe, you know, the best innovators, they learn this over time. You're not born as a great innovator. Some, some people might be better at it than others, but you can really learn this. And, and the, the more you start using the tools, the longer your experience, the better you get at it. So I really believe that this is a big shift towards a profession. Well, that's one of the reasons I was so excited to talk with you, because I know uh, being a practitioner, taking the knowledge and put into practice is so much about your work and so much about our community as well. And as I mentioned in the introduction, the world has changed a whole lot. I know you didn't have a global pandemic in your mind when you were writing this book. No. <laughs> and yet here we are. 
And so many organizations find themselves in this moment of suddenly feeling like, and, and, and in many cases, really needing to innovate in new ways. And so many people are coming to this conversation for the first time and are looking at the books and looking at the models. And I'm wondering maybe if we could look at the two key frameworks in your work around this. And, and it really comes down to two words, the word explore and the word exploit. And I'm wondering if you could paint the picture of what those two words mean in the context of innovation. Yeah, it's, it's really important. And that's always the, the first conversation I have with leaders. So I tell them, look, you can com- divide the company in two parts, exploiting what you have. That's more about management <laughs> and exploring the future. That's all about innovation. Now, most companies spend, you know, I'd say 95 or 99% of their time on exploiting what they have. And they say, yeah, yeah, but we do innovation. But it's mostly efficiency innovation, right? Better processes, doing better what they're already doing. And that's okay. You need to do that, but you can't cost cut yourself to the future, right? So most companies are optimized to manage an existing business model and get leaner and leaner at doing that. And that's also why very few companies are ready for disruption or a situation like we're facing now where the world is changing and there's so much uncertainty that you actually need to explore. You don't have a choice because the world changed now overnight. So exploration is all about navigating uncertainty. You don't know what's going to work, so you need to work in a very different way. That's the world of exploring and testing ideas. So what we started to say is, well, you need actually as a, as a large or a small and medium-sized company, you need to manage two portfolios, your exploitation, you're managing what you have, and the exploration, inventing the future. And you need to create a very clear strategic kind of guideline, portfolio guidance on how you believe the world is going to evolve and how you're going to manage that dual portfolio. I'm thinking about what you said of being a surgeon and the practice that's involved in getting better at that continuously. And to your point, a lot of organizations spend 90 to 95% of their time in the exploiting what we're already doing, getting more efficient. There hasn't been much practice in most organizations on the exploration piece, the innovation piece. And now, of course, so many people find themselves there. And I'm hoping today we could help people to not make some of the common mistakes. And you have in your work identified some key myths, but also some realities that will really help, I think, frame the leadership that's needed right now on thinking about how to enter into that exploration process. And one of the things that you point out is that the reality of innovation is turning ideas into value propositions that customers care about and business models that can scale. And it's it's not just finding and executing a perfect idea, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you're starting with, I guess, the most important myth, innovation myth that is leading to a lot of wrong behavior now. So people often think, you know, innovation is all about ideas, about the creative genius picking the right idea, and then we're going to make a PowerPoint, Excel spreadsheet, you know, and then we're going to execute that idea if it's just good enough. Now, ideas are free, they're everywhere, and they're cheap, and (laughs) they're useless to a certain extent, because you know, you don't know if a bold idea is going to work 
So you need to test and adapt that idea. That's the hard part until you find a value proposition that customers care about, until you find a business model that can scale. So now that's the real behavior you need to have in innovation, being very humble and admitting you don't know what's going to work, what looks great on paper, what could be amazing in your spreadsheet with convincing arguments, you know, great pitch, it might actually bomb. And there's numerous examples like that. So what does that mean for today's world? Same thing. Don't just pick a bold idea and pivot to that and think it's going to work. Even now that the time frame is extremely condensed and you need to move fast, you shouldn't stop testing certain things before you shift. I'll give you one silly example you know, from, from, from our world with Strategizer. We have one business unit, which is around master classes, you know, physical master classes to teach people all these concepts. But you know, with, with COVID-19, we stopped all of our events actually very early on, and we decided to pivot towards the virtual space. Makes sense, right? Sure. But now we sure. don't know if we're going to get enough people you know, to invest all the time and energy into making something really good and interactive, because that will take a huge effort. And we don't know what the price point is. So we said, let's take that as a hypothesis. First hypothesis, people will sign up and pay for a virtual masterclass. Second hypothesis, we said people will pay a minimum of $1,500 to sign up. So what we did is a very quick experiment. Within a week, we knew which price point would really work by sending out, uh, it was 1,000, I think, 1,000 emails to one price point, 1,000 emails to second price point, 1,000 emails to a third price point. And then we would observe which price point converted best, meaning, you know, which one led to most signups. And it turns out the highest price was most successful. Go figure, right? There were less people interested in the lower price in terms of conversion rate. So that helped us very quickly understand, yes, there's a public for this. And yes, there is a, you know, a price point, which is not the one we assume. We thought, okay, it will be the middle price. Actually, the, the highest price performed best. So people are willing to pay in today's environment for content because everybody you know, is going for free and everybody's saying, yeah, but you have to offer things for free in these dirt, difficult times. We do that. We do a lot of that. But we're also a company that needs to survive. So we clearly give away a lot of stuff to help you know, companies in trouble but we create, you know, a, a paid <laughs> product for large established companies and, you know, some smaller successful ones that don't have the same, uh, you know, level of crisis. So don't assume things, test them, even when the time frame is so condensed as it is today. And that's incredibly important. So leaders shouldn't just pick ideas because you don't know what's going to work and your assumptions from the past are maybe wrong. And in particular today, in this environment today, there's so many, there's so much uncertainty. The variables you know from the past are irrelevant. So you have to test. But the key here is speed. You need to do it very fast, faster than ever before. And of course, most companies don't know how to do this because they didn't practice when it was actually a little bit calmer. Yeah. I'm thinking about what you just said in the context of working with some of our academy members and my own experience doing this. And it, it seems like the... I have example after example after example of people and organizations who are able to test and try things out and to iterate quickly, just seeming to get tons of traction over time versus the organization 
that stops and really tries to get it perfect and 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 figure out the everything for months and then takes a step and yet so many of us have been trained to figure it out to project manage the whole thing forward and you've had really good success of helping organizations to make that pivot and i'm curious what is it that you've seen or you've made invitations to leaders to do that helps them to set aside a bit of that desire for perfection and having it all planned out well it comes back to the first question you asked you need to make clear there are two worlds in your company like two you need to create two cultures under one roof there's nothing wrong with being world class at execution there's nothing wrong at constantly improving your business and you know having very rigid processes for what already works so being a great innovator doesn't mean in your company you need to abandon being a great executor so as, as soon as you say, look, these are two worlds. They need to coexist. They're friends. They're not enemies. And you don't say, oh, everybody needs to change. That's the problem. It's one of these other myths in innovation where people say, everybody needs to be an innovator. Well, it's kind of untrue. You know, you can have process innovation everywhere, but not everybody has to be a business model innovator. So we draw the line and say, you need two different worlds. That's the first one. And then the second one, we really show how the logic is different in the exploration space. And we clearly show that, you know, people think this is another big myth that innovation is risky and it's expensive. Nothing could be (laughs) more wrong than this. It's terrible, right? If you do it right, you test fast with small budgets and you only increase your investments when you have evidence that you're on the right path. So you actually instrumentalize failing a lot while you're experimenting in order to figure out what could work. So innovation is not expensive at the early stages if you do it right. It gets Uh expensive when you're scaling, but then you already de-risk, right? So people are just, you know, falling for these myths, right idea, and then I need to make a big splash so the idea has a big return. And then there's another big myth, and I think this is the one that not everybody's really figured out. There's this myth that you can pivot yourself to success. No, you can't. Sometimes you need to kill ideas Uh and that's okay because, you know, let's take a medium-sized company. You invest in 10 ideas to get one that works, but it also means after three months, you've killed, you know, seven out of the 10 projects and you only further invest in three and then again, only in one at the very end. So in innovation, you can't pick the winner when you go for bold innovation. So you don't invest in one project, you invest in several. That's really, really important. The logic is so different from management because there you invest in one project and it has to succeed because that's the logic of managing, you know, building a new warehouse. And that's okay. But in innovation, you can't. It's not an execution problem. It's a search problem. This is where you're thought earlier of the, these are totally different skill sets, which I want to ask you more about it is, is really yeah. true. And this begs a question for me of thinking about, you know, one of these myths that, you know, if you just, if you just kind of magically test things and adapt, you know, something's going to come to fruition, but in most cases it's not. How do you know when to kill something? It's difficult, but it's also getting easier. So there's one thing that is very clear There is a visionary part where the entrepreneur or intrapreneur, however you want to call it, you know, pushes forward. But Steve Blank likes to say, 
be careful that you don't mistake vision, you know, that your vision is not a hallucination. So what you actually need in order to know if you should further invest or should kill is you need to track the evidence for four dimensions of risk. First dimension is desirability. Do customers actually want it, right? Do, do they have a particular job pain or gain? You know, can we create value for them? You need to show with evidence they have that particular pain, right? They're interested in this. You need to show with evidence. The second dimension is feasibility. Can I build it? Can I, you know, create the partnerships? Can I create the infrastructure to do this at scale? That is usually the least of problems because most companies focus on that part. But then the third type of risk is viability. Can I make more money from it than I will spend? So remember the little experiment I mentioned? We actually tested pricing so we would know with evidence, not just because we came up with it in the spreadsheet, we would know with evidence how much we could earn from, from an idea like this. So you need to look at those three dimensions and then you want to add a fourth one, adaptability. Is today's environment the right one? So you start to score how much evidence you have. And we created a very simple tool that's in the book, or you can even Google it. It's called the Innovation Project Scorecard. You can score each project to figure out how much evidence you have. And you'll only invest in different stages when you have enough evidence. So we're not even looking at the idea per se. We're looking at the evidence for these four risk dimensions that we brought to the table that prove or at least indicate, if you want, that there is actually something there. And that's really, really important for leaders to understand because you are not picking ideas you like. You are picking teams that bring evidence to the table. That's a very different way of deciding. And entrepreneurs are more comfortable with that than managers because managers build on their experience what worked in the past. But in innovation, it can be the contrary. What worked in the past won't work in the future back to the environment today. You know, what worked yesterday doesn't work today. We're in a completely different kind of environment of a distributed work, of completely different, you know, economic environment, et cetera, et cetera. So you can't assume anything. You need to judge the evidence. So this scoring, we found it extremely powerful and it also allows leaders to ask better questions. So they'll ask the team, you know, what's your evidence for that? Have you tried to test it this way? The leader's role is less to judge the idea, but to judge the evidence and to help the team create more evidence and potentially to redesign the business model. And I'm guessing that helps guard against a bit of the, here's my pet idea that I'm really excited about and allows from a leadership standpoint to look at it a little bit more just passionately and say, okay, you know, yes, maybe I like this idea, but the evidence is clearly indicating that this, you know, on the scorecard, it's it's not the way to go. We're not getting the response from our customers. So that's probably the one we don't move forward with. 100%, 100%. So there's a good example. We, we In the book, we have the example of the accelerator program at Bosch. Bosch is a, a global, huge German engineering company, 400,000 people. They have a very good accelerator where over three years, they invested in 169 projects and they weeded out at every stage projects that didn't bring enough evidence to the table and only 14 made it to the end. So Uwe Kirchner, who manages this, told me an interesting story. He said, you know, there's some teams in the company, they don't want to go through our accelerator program because they know that the ideas will get killed because they have to show the evidence, right? Yeah. So that's exactly the way you kill pet projects and those shouldn't exist. 
I'm thinking about the Bosch example and some of the other statistics I've heard you cite before on just how many types of different bets are really needed and really define the ones that gradually over time are going to surface with the best evidence. I'm wondering if you could maybe share some of those numbers and statistics with us because it's just fascinating how broadly we do need to be thinking as leaders. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the, the, it, it's very simple is that the bigger the return you want from an innovation initiative, the more projects you would need to invest in. So when I was saying at Bosch, they invested over three years in 169 to get four, you know, that would make it to the exploit portfolio. It's because they understand that you can't pick the winner and you need to create a broad funnel. Now, if you look at early stage venture capital, you'll find a good indicator of how many projects you need to invest in, not how how many ideas to pick, but how many projects you need to invest in to get an outlier, a mega success. It turns out it's 250 projects to create one outlier. And that might not even be a billion dollar success because the statistics from early stage venture capital show, so investing early in ideas, that one out of 250 or four out of a thousand will create a 50x return on capital. That means, you know, if you put in 100, you'll get 50 times 100 back. So now we're only talking valuation. If we're talking revenues, we're talking real business, right? Because valuation is often fantasy. Probably the number is much, much higher than 250. And you say, well, which company can actually do that? Well, guess what? At Amazon, they have thousands of experiments running in parallel. And that's how they create winners like Amazon Web Services. So that's really important, that logic. Now, of course, the first thing that, that smaller companies say, yeah, but we can't do this. We can't invest in 250. But, you know, a smaller company is also not expecting a billion-dollar return. Yeah. So if you invest in five projects or 10, you'll get a smaller return, but you'll still get the, you know, the innovation kind of thing. So I usually like to say you invest a million, you probably get 10 million back. Now, obviously, that's a very, you know, rough kind of thing. And there are a lot of variables that determine the return. But it, it, you need to invest in several projects in, in order to get one that succeeds. The broader the funnel, the bigger the return of the project. So it's, it's like the portfolio theory in finance. We just need to bring that to corporations. And it works for very small companies as well as very big ones. It's not just for the big companies. That's another myth. Yeah, well, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I was thinking as you were saying that, I was like, wow, you know, the Amazons, the Bosches of the world, you know, they are going to have a hard time too in this new environment. And yet they've got more capital to be able to make some of those investments. And, the, and yet the small and medium sized businesses struggle. And they're, maybe they only have a team of a few dozen people or a few hundred. And so I, I, what I think I'm hearing you say is the invitation here is, the one idea you were thinking of moving on to innovate on, or maybe the two ideas, make that four or five or six, and then have them be different than each other, not having those be related ideas. Is am I exactly. am I hearing you right on that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Because you know, you, you need to explore ideas with different business models, and then you know the winning one will emerge because you don't know at the beginning. And Rita McGrath, you know, Columbia scholar, she like good friend of of mine. She likes oh, to yeah. say- Oh yeah, she's uh, been on the show. Great, great. So she likes to say that, you know, at the beginning, good and bad ideas, they look exactly the same. You can't distinguish them. So you need to invest in several, right? You know, the more energy you have for this and time, you know, you can go with crazy ideas. Like what if we gave away our most important product for free? 
you know, how could we earn money? This sounds like a silly thing to do, but guess what happened to the whole, you know, mapping businesses or anything that got disrupted by Amazon, Google, and, and Apple, right? So, so you want to think of very different business models. And in our book, we thought, well, you know, people are still very much stuck in product and technology space. Another big myth, you need technology to innovate. No, you don't. I'll give an example in a second. So we, we said, let's, let's provide a pattern library for, of business model patterns to help people explore potential different business models. Because I believe, you know, and we believe that at Strategizer, today the competition is around business models. It's not around better product, services, technology, and price, because that's a battle you can't win anymore. And I'll give you a really simple example of a company that outcompeted everybody else with inferior technology. And I'm sure many of you who are listening, you probably even played with it. So the Nintendo Wii, when they launched it as a platform, as a game console, it was technologically inferior to the competitors at the time. Now, what did they do right? They had a different value proposition and different business model. The value proposition was casual gaming with motion control for casual gamers. So a completely different market segment than the traditional gaming thing, which was about hardcore gamers. Now, they only used off-the-shelf technology, and so that's why the console was not as good, but they knew casual gamers care about the fun aspect. So motion control was actually not, you know, it was an off-the-shelf technology, nothing sophisticated. So with that, they reached a larger market with inferior technology. Guess what inferior technology off-the-shelf means? Less cost. So bigger market, you know, more profits. <laughs> Unbelievable. So think of innovation this way. You know, could you outcompete others with inferior technology and make more profit? It's exactly what Nintendo did. So we have a whole series of these business model patterns that should allow you to think of new business models that you could either invent or business models that you could shift towards. So we have two sets of libraries. One is around business model shifts. How do you turn one business model that you have today, for example, a production business model, into a platform business model? How do you shift from one to the other? And people just don't know this enough yet. It's not rocket science. But it, it's just like a little trigger, you know, we, like we use patterns in architecture, this can help leaders ask themselves better questions. So the goal of a leader is not to say, oh, I like this market, I like this technology, is really to ask, how could we shift our business model? And how could we create a you know, more powerful business model that is less likely to be disrupted with recurring revenues, with customers locked in, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a lot of space there because... All the companies we work with, they're, you know, most of them are world-class at technology and product innovation, but they're really bad at business model innovation. So the opportunity is enormous, and the first who move there will be the winners. And you think their entire industries, finance, banking, pharma, there's a huge opportunity space to be you know, among the leaders to do business model innovation. Those industries are ripe for disruption. It's amazing too. You mentioned uh, the Nintendo Wii as an example. My wife and I bought one years ago before we even had, had kids, and now our oldest is eight years old, and they play it all the time and have been playing it in quarantine the last couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, because it's so accessible and it's fun for casual gamers, which we are. And it really does speak to that if you can get out of the traditional thinking a bit and look at things in a new way, 
you can really create something that's really special and and sustainable for a long period of time. And thinking about that, I'm coming back to what you said earlier too of just how different these skill sets are. And I know one of the assumptions that managers make is well, you know, the skills required to explore and to manage are similar and in reality they're really really different. And so I'm curious Alex, what for for the person who finds themselves or on the executive team of a medium-sized organization who suddenly finds themselves in the space of oh, I'm not managing what I thought I was managing anymore. All of a sudden, I'm now needing to lead exploration and lead innovation. Can they make that shift from being a manager to being someone that's thinking about innovation? And if not, how does an organization that's used to doing mostly management start to do this and 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 do it quickly? Yeah, I think not everybody can and not everybody should, right? So we all have, you know, interests, passions and skills. So I don't think any organization I've met, and yes, I work obviously with a lot bigger organizations, I've never seen a talent problem. And that might be different, you know, if you're 10 or so, you might not have the innovation talent. But usually when you're 100 or more, there's never a talent problem. But you need to pick the right people who have the right kind of passion and the right attitude. And then obviously if they have the skill set better, but um, you know, you do learn this with experience over time. But I've never seen, you know, a company that doesn't have creative people that are passionate about innovating and have the right mindset. So it's there. And but the big one is putting innovation at the very top strategic level. So I like to say that if the top management, ideally the CEO, doesn't spend 40 or 50 or more percent of his or her time on innovation, then that company will never innovate. They're not capable of doing that because it's a symbolic signal, if you want, that if the boss or the bosses don't take time for innovation, then you know what? The organization doesn't care. And great leaders like Bracken Darrell of Logitech, you know, he does that. He spends 40 to 70% of his time on innovation. Guess what that signal is. So as a leader, if you really want innovation to happen, take the time, put it in your agenda every week, 40 to 70% of your time, then innovation will happen automatically because you give it symbolic value. So that's incredibly important, the symbolic signals that you send. And it's not just about the money. Money is the smallest and probably the easiest aspect. Well, and as you said earlier, if you're doing it right, it shouldn't be a major investment at early on until you have gone Correct. through the scorecard. And I'm going to connect some dots here that may not connect. So you tell me if I'm wrong. Part of what I'm kind of synthesizing is even if I'm a traditional manager, I'm a chief operations officer, I'm a director, and I've, I've never really done much of this. But because of this environment, I now am, for better or worse. And even if I'm not the creative person, even if I'm not the the person who should be necessarily leading innovation long term, that if I'm willing to make more small bets of set aside perfection, of starting to use the scorecard, if I'm at least willing to set up that framework and to start communicating about that and giving that visibility, that I'm probably going to be way better off and I'm going to start to build that framework within the organization way better than if I didn't do that at all because I said, well, I'm not good at this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know that's where, where Amazon is an interesting example, right? They're world-class at execution and they're world-class at exploration. Now, there you have a uh, entrepreneur who was at the head of the company, but you know there was a very long 
kind of scaling phase where they just had to get it right, build new warehouses. That's a pure execution problem. But at the same time, uh, Jeb Bezos, you know, stayed open to exploration and he created the environment for that. So it's all about mindset. So I think you're absolutely right. And it starts with, you know, how you see your company. So there's a company in Asia, I won't mention the name, <laughs> but I visited them, huge corporation, Southeast Asia, and they were super proud to bring me to their headquarters. And, and, and they said, this is a new building, you know, we call it 100 years because our company is 100 years old. And you should be proud if you made it for 100 years because that's, that's, you know, in itself a, a challenge. But then I told them the story of the Amazon headquarters, which is called Day One. And it immediately hit them, right? So the different attitude, it's not only being proud of what you've achieved, you need to be obsessed by reinventing yourself. And that's what, you know, they, they, they call day one at Amazon, being obsessed of going out of business, they constantly reinvent themselves. And that's the attitude you need. And, you know, operations people can set that up. Obviously, over the longer term, this is not what you know, uh, more operationally inclined people are comfortable with. So you do need to have the right people who, over the longer term manage and expand this, but you can start if you just follow some of the basic rules. It's just that today, most companies, they're only set up to execute because for a very long time, that was the only game in time and it was the most important game. Today, it's not that that game is not important anymore. It's just not enough to be good at that game. It's like you need to be good at at ping pong and tennis at the same time. They're not the same thing, right? Yeah. So, so you need to create that under the same roof. Incredibly important. That's why I really love this book because it is the invitation to get started and you're just always amazing with your graphics. And this, this is one of those books, by the way, to get the hard copy and dive in on it because I think that if you start there, it'll really illuminate so many different paths you can go down. And you all do this for organizations uh, too, Alex, of helping them to dive in on this and get better at this, right? Yeah, absolutely. And for us, the principle is always make it as simple as possible, but not simplistic. And I think that was a, a quote uh, I'm stealing from somebody. Uh, I think it was Einstein, right? But you know, making it as simple as possible, but not simplistic. And in particular, because there's so much there. Now, we also believe that you know, this is a profession that needs support. So just like you know, computer-aided design or accounting started to have software support, you know, we add that layer at Strategize and believe in the methodology, but also the technological layer. You can't manage a business model portfolio just with a, an Excel spreadsheet. It doesn't work that way. So we, we, you know, we build these technology-enabled services to use people where people are most important, but use technology where technology is most important. So I, I believe creating the right frameworks and then having the technology and the people to support that, that's incredibly important that you get that right. You have been around the world. I've seen your postings. I've seen your organization doing incredible things for the last decade, teaching leaders how to do this better. As you have done that and you have talked with organizations and you've seen all the change happen in the world, in the last couple of years, what have you changed your mind on, Alex? So a, a big question for me was, and I discussed that a lot with other thinkers like uh, Steve Blank, can a manager lead the entrepreneurial organization? Almost comes back a little bit to the question we just discussed, right? And yeah. I wasn't sure because the great examples like Amazon or Apple or so, they were all led by entrepreneurs, 
But I really changed my mind more and more because I'm starting to see incredibly entrepreneurial people who didn't start out as entrepreneurs, but managers. So I really, really changed my mind on that. You know, it doesn't have to be just entrepreneurs who can build the entrepreneurial organization. So I would hope to see more leaders making that shift, just like a, at Bracken Darrell or a Paul Pullman. Alex Osterwalder is the author of The Invincible Company, How to Constantly Reinvent Your Organization with Inspiration from the World's Best Business Models. Alex, thank you so much for your wisdom. Thanks for having me. This was a great conversation. You heard Alex mention the Innovation Project Scorecard during this conversation. I've linked up to that in the episode notes. It'll also be in this week's Weekly Leadership Guide. In addition, several other episodes that'll be useful to you if you found this conversation helpful. One of them is episode 207, How to Transform Your Limitations into Advantages with Mark Barden. He is the author of the book, A Beautiful Constraint. He is one of the many voices on this show over the years who has made the case that uh, our constraints actually are one of our greatest advantages because those constraints really do challenge us to work within the resources we already have. You heard that echoed in this conversation. Episode 207 is a great reinforcement of that. Also recommended is episode 418, The Way to Nurture New Ideas with Safi Bacall. He is the author of the best-selling book, Loon Shots, and talked extensively about innovation on the show last year. And he makes the distinction in his work between the soldiers and the artists. And that's echoed in this conversation as well, the distinction between exploiting and exploration. Uh, so much there as well that will support you if you're thinking about innovation and the wonderful work that Safi does of looking at the history of innovation. So much there in episode 418. And then finally, of course, I couldn't uh, possibly talk about innovation without mentioning the work of Rita McGrath. How to start seeing around corners, particularly important now in a time of so much change for all of us. Episode 430 is when she was on talking about her most recent book. All of those episodes you can find tagged under the innovation category on the coachingforleaders.com website. You can get access to all of those conversations plus every conversation we've ever had around innovation and strategy just by going on and establishing your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. When you do, it's going to allow you to access the entire library since 2011 searchable by topic. Plus you'll get access to all of my book notes, the weekly leadership guides that come every Wednesday to you, and all of the resources embedded inside the coachingforleaders.com website. The best way to get access to all of that is just go over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership, and as soon as you do, you'll get access inside the entire panel. Just takes about 10 minutes to do so. <laughs> 10 minutes, 10 seconds. What am I talking about? 10 seconds to set up your membership, but hopefully you'll be there more than 10 minutes looking through all of the resources. Hey, next week, I'm glad to welcome Lois Frankel back to the show. I mentioned a few weeks ago she was going to be on the next week. Hey, apparently I'm not able to read a calendar. She's really on next week teaching us how to say no. See you next week for my conversation with Lois. Take care, everyone.